Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Andy Ricketts, Acting Editor. And I'm Lucinda Rouse, Senior Multimedia Reporter for Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week, we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about the interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And in this episode, we're tackling the thorny issue of executive bonuses in the charity sector. Lucinda, what are the best perks or bonuses that you've received in in a job? Well, I think it's safe to say that I have never received an executive bonus. Uh, (laughs) So we can strike that one off the list straight away. Perhaps the most formal bonus that I've received that really had value to me was in a previous job, I had an airport lounge pass, uh, which was fantastic. Yeah, it really improved the quality of my life. Um, (laughs) But unexpected experiences in my work, I would probably say uh, would be on the top of the list of, of my workplace bonuses. And as journalists, I think it, well, depends on the job really, but it's Mm. probably safe to say that we have more than our fair share of those um, unexpected experiences. I think you might be right. I mean, what sort of things are you talking about when you refer to things that you've had? So one of my best work experiences, or life experiences, which was also linked to work, was when I was reporting from Liberia, uh, I did a story on sea cucumber divers. And the roads there are absolutely terrible. Um, It would have taken me several days. So I was extremely lucky to get a seat on a tiny plane run by MAF, the Mission Aviation Fellowship. And it was just one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life. An hour's flight as opposed to a 30-plus hour drive and just looking down at that lush tropical coastline it was just a it was just a a brilliant experience so that would be my my bonus I think probably over my airport lounge pass (laughs) (laughs) how about you well I think that probably most people don't go into journalism for the pay it's fair to say (laughs) unless you're a real bigwig Uh, working for the BBC or one of the national newspapers, generally speaking, most of us lowly journalists are not paid much of of a huge coin. But one thing that we do do, as you've just mentioned, is we do get access to people and places that you wouldn't otherwise necessarily get to go to. I mean, one of the things I love about the voluntary sector is you get to talk to the big decision makers and people at the top of charities, which is which actually... I mean, this is going to sound a bit worthy, but that is a real privilege because those people are making massive decisions that affect many, many people's lives. But in terms of the places that you get access to, that is something really amazing as well. So I've always enjoyed the the opportunity of going to locations that you wouldn't otherwise get to go to as a normal member of the public. Such as? Well, I think my favourite is probably going to the top of the BT Tower, ah. which is really exciting because that used to be open to the, well, when I was young, and this dates me somewhat, but it used to be open to the public. Didn't they have a restaurant up there? There was a restaurant, that's right, uh, until someone tried to bomb it and then that was closed to the public. And now that it is still used for some sort of corporate dues. So I got to go up there for that. And the view is fantastic because obviously it's right in the heart of the city. It's one of the tallest buildings around. And it rotates, oh, of course which it is does. really yeah. cool. Shall we get down to business? Let's do it. 
This week's discussion on bonuses for charity executives follows the news that Simon Cook, Chief Executive of MSI Reproductive Choices, received a £229,000 bonus in 2021, almost doubling his annual pay to £460,000. MSI defended the payout saying, we look for individuals with a track record of delivery in an international commercial context. MSI's compensation for the most senior executives includes a performance-related bonus component that reflects the deliverables expected of the organisation and the individual. And you might remember that MSI itself was in hot water with the Charity Commission three years ago for not following the right processes in awarding Cook's then £217,000 bonus. The regulator said the charity failed to properly record the discussions around his bonus. And the MSI chief executive's take-home pay is significantly higher than the average if Akivo's pay and equality survey is anything to go by. According to just over a 1,000 respondents in their 2021 pay survey, the median CEO salary in 2021 was £58,000, up from £55,993 in 2020. 86% of chief executives did not receive a bonus in the past year, 9% did, up from 6% in 2020, and 45% of those received it based on personal performance with a slightly smaller proportion basing it on overall organisational performance. So without further ado, we are joined by charity headhunter David Fielding, MBE, the founder and managing partner of Attenti. David specialises in recruiting chairs, trustees, chief executives and directors. Welcome, David, and thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So could we start by talking about the argument for awarding bonuses for charity executives? I think the arguments for, in my opinion, are slightly weaker than the arguments against. But I think for a number of boards often say, well, this aids and drives performance. It also helps with retention. And generally, it's a way to equalize uh, a level of pay, which is often I think it's fair to say in the Akivo survey over the years has uh, proved this, that it's often off beam and off track against other comparators. But those would generally be the arguments for. Short and to the point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I, I sense that that is not your personal opinion on this. I think it's a, you've got to look at the optics of bonuses really. Um, So, you know, we talked to a number of folk in different sectors and in professional services and financial services where uh, culturally bonus time is an important part of the whole remuneration package. It's something that's understood. It's uh, driven against very tight KPIs and targets and people understand that that's the way it happens. I think when you try to integrate that approach into charities, which let's be honest, by definition, there are so many different shapes and forms of organizations and sizes operating very very different ways. I think it's just difficult, A, to justify to staff who are perhaps somewhere near or just above minimum wage. Equally, I think it's very hard to justify to uh, the public. And if you think, you know, contextually, we are going into a 10-year recession, which people talk about, we've got a perfect storm. (laughs) Increased borrowing, increased mortgages, massive defaults is going to be only today. We've had 18 18 billion pounds worth of cuts to public 
sector services announced by Kwasi Kwarteng at the, uh, at the conference. So what does that mean? There's going to be a, a massive increase of need uh, across all the beneficiary groups of charities. So life is going to get much, much harder. Equally, there's going to be a, a real tension around voluntary giving. So one end, you've got increased demand for services. At the other end, you've got reduced capital coming into the sector. I think it's very difficult for charities to go out on the front foot and say, yes, but we thought we'd pay this amount of money for a chief executive because it it puts us in a similar territory to bankers' bonuses. And it may be unfair, but it is you have to deal with the honest reality of, of what perceptions are looking like. And in terms of the insight for the work that you do, working with charities and, and people who are looking for jobs in the voluntary sector, what's your position on the kind of the appetite among charities and among candidates who are interested in charity jobs for bonus payments to form part of their remuneration? People within the sector, so charity chief execs who are looking to move, I think often know that it comes with increased scrutiny and actually is it really worth you know having to put it in the annual report having to have the charity commission having oversight of it for the amount of value that is sometimes talked about five percent or ten percent or whether that's five grand ten grand or, or even 20 grand does it really make a material difference and i think a lot of people within the sector say no it doesn't I think people who are moving from other sectors who come from a culture where bonuses are part and parcel of a, a process and of a culture, then, yeah, they're kind of, well, this is what I'm going to get. Personally, I'd much prefer salaries to be competitive and packages to be competitive. So I've, I talk with lots of chief execs on this point, and they say they'd much prefer, you know, instead of an extra £10,000, they much prefer flexible working. So, you know, before COVID, there was probably a, a general agreement that one day a week working from home was something that's that's part and parcel of, of the role of the chief exec. I think now post-COVID, people are saying, well, two days is probably doable. But I think the other thing is often recruitment and retention is regarded as one of the issues why we need to do this. But I think... In, we need to push back on that argument. I think there are other ways in which you can attract uh, chief executives. So, A, clarity of purpose. Often organisations start recruiting without really a deep conversation about what's our strategy going forwards, what's the skill sets that we need, You know, how do we want this new chief exec to, to drive this organisation in the future? At risk of saying the obvious, that's why headhunters are still used to enable those conversations. Um, I think equally, it's the appetite of risk and the calibre of the chair and the calibre of the board. What kind of genuine support and challenge and and guidance can a chief exec uh, get has to be really clear and upfront uh, when recruiting. And I think also, it's about the cause. I mean, let, let's be honest. I mean, we are a sector that is cause-driven. So let's put that cause uh, front and centre and people will make a, a determination about whether they want to, to kind of go there. And in your view, um, how commonplace are bonus payments across the voluntary sector generally? I mean, I guess we're more talking about the larger charities here, the ones that are able to offer bigger 
salary packages rather than the small charities that just employ uh, you know not very many people at all my observation would be that they are uh, reducing in that i think people just understand that they're probably more hassle than they're worth a the value that they really mean to the chief executive or, or the top team equally you know, having to defend this to uh, beneficiaries and, you know, having to go to an annual general meeting where you have people who are really involved and really engaged probably think the chief exec is being paid too much money anyway. If we think MPs get paid too much, I'm sure, you know, people would think some of the big charities are paid too much because they're is an absolute lack of arguing for the value of chief execs. I mean, we, in a bigger picture, we really do need to make this case, I think, particularly sector bodies, that a good charity chief exec is as good as a local authority chief exec, is as good as a vice chancellor, is as good as a health service chief exec. But I think from the bonus perspective, no, I think it would be much better. And I've heard chief execs say this, I'd much prefer that extra 10 grand or that 15 grand Uh, be spent on board governance. Let's do a bit more recruitment and get a a more diverse board. Let's have a bit more training and development uh, spent from a governance perspective. Equally, chief execs will say to me, I'd much prefer that money to be spent on on open development. Let me go and do extra bit of learning and development elsewhere. Often the argument is, well, you're a chief exec, you don't need it now. What a nonsense. Uh, of course people need to be developed and why would you not want to spend some money on that so i think there are other ways in which that money can be better spent and i think a number of chief execs know the kind of scrutiny they're not bothered about scrutiny about from an organizational perspective but when it comes to a personal perspective what relates to what they did versus what their leadership team did and the whole organization I think is uh, is very difficult to uh, articulate and justify. And David, I mean, you you have a pretty unique perspective um, across the board, given that you're speaking to both candidates, um, chief executives in post and their employers. Um, I don't think you can compare apples and oranges, right? The charity sector is massive. There are so many different parts to it um, in in terms of mission, in terms of size, um, and also in terms of where they get their money from. Um, You're sort of talking about different attitudes that you've heard, but do do you see differing attitudes towards bonuses by charity type and probably most importantly in terms of where their funds are coming from? I think it's tricky for boards sometimes to know what the right thing to do is because what what are the comparators? So Attenti supported Akivo for about 10 years doing the pay and diversity survey. And what was interesting, and also as a former HR director, I've done quite a few uh, remuneration benchmarking surveys is that the truth is you can get whatever answer you want depending on what comparators you use. And I think that's a golden nugget that's often embedded in lots of conversations. So if you're working within a large education charity, for example, and if you have really close associations with large universities or some of the teaching hospitals, for example, some of that information and the, that cross-cultural kind of dynamic makes you think, well, 
if we pay £200,000 for a, a vice chancellor, surely we need to pay something similar for somebody within this similar cadre. I may not be uh, articulating this as, as clearly, but I think it's difficult to compare. You can't compare, as you said, apples with oranges. I mean, then you look at international charities, so particularly those who are based in the States and therefore have uh, different wings and country operations. So I think it's difficult for boards to know where to look for uh, evidence and for what they should do. Ultimately, I think it's always about what do the beneficiaries think, or it has to be because that's quarter to why we're why we're a special sector and we work in this sector. Yeah, and I, I think it it seems to be anecdotally true, and I guess you would see a bit more of this on the front line that it tends to be the big fundraising charities and not those organisations that are looking to pay bonuses because they're obviously aware of that dilemma that you've set out in terms of that's the money that's coming from small donations potentially and people could use people could see that and think well I don't want my donation going into someone's bonus we've tended to see it more across organisations that get a lot of their money from contracts or that kind of thing is that a fair assessment would you say? I think that is a very fair assessment. If you think about some of the big service delivery charities, you could almost argue that they're they're a combination of local authority and bits of health because of the way that they're uh, constructed and you know the competitive environment that they operate in, and therefore, yeah, they're they're less sensitive, I think, to uh, what a frontline frontline staff or beneficiary may say. Equally, their comparators are large local authorities at times and that's the people your directors of adult social services um, and children's services so there that's the space in which they're often engaging and operating and that therefore that has an impact on on where they'll remunerate and what kind of packages they'll think about when attracting new chief executives and is there currently or has there been during the course of your work in this area, a shortage of strong candidates as chief executives who are willing to take the lower salaries that are offered to them as opposed to if they were working in health authorities or vice chancellors of universities or um, even just a purely corporate job? That's a really challenging question to to answer, if I'm being honest. Um, So what is the answer to that? I think there are great chief executives in in all sectors. And I have conversations with many who do want to come into the charity sector, but sometimes find themselves priced out because of what they've earned previously. Now, that's just a matter of kind of record, really. I've seen people move sectors who have been brilliant, but equally I've seen it when when it goes really badly and, and there's a lack of cultural fit. So back to my point about... If you're recruiting, I think you really need to have a clear and articulate appointment brief. I think you need to have real clarity of purpose, have a real sense of how you're going to present, how you operate, in what way you operate, and how you'll get the best out of a chief exec and how they work. So I think there's the recruitment process bit that you need to get right. I know it sounds obvious to say that, but you'd be amazed how many organizations don't uh, get that right. But I think there's also an argument that salaries are slightly depressed. I mean, if if £58,000 is the median salary for charity chief execs, 
you look across at other sectors, I mean, come on. <laughs> we do need to do uh, more work on this. I've always been slightly surprised that, um, and I've talked with you know previous chief execs of NCVO and, and of Akivo and Social Enterprise Coalition and all the other partners, they, they're sometimes sensitive about this, about not really making the case for better remuneration and better packages for chief executives and directors because it is a, it's always a sensitive subject. But I do think we need, as a sector, to be on the front foot and make that case. I think thirdly, the point is, I do not believe there's a shortage of high-caliber people. What there is a shortage of often are people who've done exactly the same job previously because boards, I think, often are quite risk-averse. And the mantra, past performance is a great indicator of future success. Well, if they haven't fundraised and grown an organization from X to Y, then we, we don't want to consider them. So sometimes you do get boards who have a quite a narrow view, which is unless they've done this job before, we're not going to take a risk on people. With better governance, uh, better support and challenge, better you know monitoring of a strategic plan and how somebody could lead a role, there's lots of opportunities to bring people in from other sectors and there are people within the sector who you could easily develop and take a chance on. So I'd, I'd like to push back on that. Oh, there isn't there isn't the talent there. One final question for you, David. In terms of charities that might be considering this whole minefield that you've set out, I mean, you've made it clear what your position is on this. What advice would you give to them if they're considering whether or not they should offer bonuses to their senior staff? Don't. (laughs) Back to my point, I think there are other ways in which you can motivate and retain people and you could get far more bang for your buck than just offering a bonus. But if if you are going down that route, then you, you need to take advice. You need to take advice on how it's constructed, how it's reported and how you're going to judge against it. And beyond flexible working, supportive trustee boards and a generally clear vision and good culture, what other carrots would you dangle before potential candidates um, in terms of perks to make sure that they get the best possible candidate? I think we've got to talk about culture, values and um, a sense of humour in all of this. In our sector, charities often deal with some really grim and some real difficult challenges it's hard to constantly be thinking about that. So I think you do need to create an environment where, whilst of course you're being serious and of course you're focusing on delivering whatever you're delivering to your beneficiaries, that there's some personal engagement and some humour and some an openness to uh, development and learning. Chief execs often find themselves quite isolated in roles and the calibre of the chair and the calibre of the conversation that they can have with their board and with their top team is absolutely crucial to how long somebody will will remain in post and, and potentially take a, a job on. So I think there's a there's a lot more a lot more can be done in and around governance, and we're probably behind the pace as a sector on this, if truth be told. So <laughs> swap your fifty thousand pound bonus for a great sense of humour of the people around you. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't realise that that was how much the bonus was on offer. Um, <laughs> well, but, but I think there are different ways in which you can get more bang for your buck. Is is what I'm saying, 
Um, and also back to that benchmarking point, you're not benchmarking is can be so false when you start using other people in other sectors as comparators. Surely the conversation is how do I um, how do I motivate you? And it should be individual conversations. Chief execs might be in a particular place where actually they don't need that money. They don't need to have a level of recognition in that way. Levels of recognition and reward can be can be delivered in so many different ways. And I think you've just got to be a bit more creative and a bit more open about this rather than it just being fixed. David Fielding, thanks very much for your time. Thank you for having me on. Now for this week's Good News Bulletin, featuring everything from the positive to the downright strange stories we've spotted in the voluntary sector. Lucinda, what have you got for us this week? Up first, Norfolk has a TikTok charity shop sensation. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, 46-year-old Caroline Butler, aka Caroline the Thrifter on TikTok, is passionate about secondhand clothing. She admits to spending all of her spare time in charity shops and car boot sales and then posts videos of herself modelling her hauls on TikTok. Right. And I, I don't know, have you have you come across Caroline the Thrifter on TikTok, Andy? I have not. I mean, I'm not a big TikTok user, I've got to say. <laughs> it's not something that's found its way onto my phone. I'm probably not the target audience. Well, okay, you aside, it has proven to be popular content. She's got almost 14,000 followers but some of her videos have generated over 300,000 views. And she's, yeah, obviously gathered, garnered quite a lot of visibility um, from these videos. And she has provided a rundown of her favourite treasure hunting hotspots across Norfolk, the vast majority of which are charity shops. Fantastic. Are you much of a charity shopper? I'm not really. I haven't been recently. I used to be when I was a student, got some great hauls, um, but I, I... don't live too far from Portobello Market in London. Right. And I gather that they have some incredible designer um, items at a steal. So I, I should make my way there soon. It's the place to go. It's the place to go. Well, you should get down there to see what you can find. I think I would normally associate going to charity shops with trying to find some budget board games. Ooh. Always something I enjoy. Sometimes they get thrown away by people who don't appreciate what they've got and you can pick them up for a song in a charity shop but it it can be a case of looking for a needle in a haystack some of the time because you can visit hundreds of charity shops and they never have any board games that i'd be interested in but occasionally you find one and then it's yes but that's part of the joy of it isn't it exactly you feel like it's you've really achieved something when you finally get it and and you can become essentially a professional charity charity shopper like caroline has the thrill of the hunt Should we talk about number two? So I've got something here about football grounds. Lucinda, have you visited many football grounds in the UK? I have not visited many football grounds in my time, but the most recent one I visited was Swindon Town County Ground. Uh, And I was lucky enough to interview Don Rogers, who scored twice in the 1969 League Cup final against Arsenal. Who can forget? Winning the cup, propelling Swindon to victory. Wow. Uh, as the as the underdogs. Well, the reason why I ask is because four friends from Teesside visited 92 football league grounds. That's all of them in the Premier League and the Football League in just 82 hours. And they did it all in the name of charity. So their feet last month began in Sheffield at 5am 
on the Friday and finished at 3pm the following Monday. Now, the local newspaper, the Hartlepool Mail, reports that they travelled two and a half thousand miles in a camper van during that period, which is pretty remarkable, I'd say, just even without visiting the grounds. But they raised more than £3,000 for the National Autistic Society, Macmillan Cancer Support and Dementia UK. That's amazing. So how much time were they on the road versus... I don't know, watching a match or even just sleeping. (laughs) I don't think they could have watched any matches. Well, maybe they did watch a bit of a match. I'm not quite sure how it worked in terms of loads of logistics. But they slept apparently four or five hours a night while on their journey. So well done to those chaps. That's it for this week. We'll be back with another episode soon. So if you've enjoyed this one, make sure you subscribe to the Third Sector podcast on all good platforms to be the first to know about it. Until then, I'm Lucinda Rouse. And I'm Andy Ricketts. Thank you to our guest, David Fielding, and to our producers, Aidan Lyons and Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio. Join us again next week.